Today's episode of SBJ iFactor is sponsored by Pepsi. Today on SBJ iFactor, we speak with Mark Tatum, who was named NBA Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer in February 2014. Tatum joined the NBA in 1999 and was an SBJ 40 Under 40 honoree in 2006, 2007, and 2008 making him a member of our 40 Under 40 Hall of Fame. Here's our conversation with Mark Tatum. NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum and 40 Under 40 Hall of Famer and royalty. Thank you for joining us today on SBJ iFactor. Thanks for having me, Abe. It's good to see you. It's great to see you. You know, you have a great story to tell, Mark, so let's get right to it. Uh, born in Vietnam, your family moved to New York City, East Flatbush, if, I am, if I'm correct, as a child. How did that influence you and guide your path? That's right. That's right. Yeah, so I was born in Bung Tau, Vietnam. My dad is Black. He grew up in Jamaica and Kingston, came to the States when he was a teenager, joined the U.S. Air Force, and then went to Vietnam, met my mother, fell in love, got married over there, had me, and then he brought us back. So, you know, one of the things that I, it brought us back to Brooklyn and East Flatbush, and that's where I grew up. And I went to public schools all through high school, PS 181, um, then IS 227 in Bensonhurst. And then I went to Brooklyn Tech High School and played baseball there. And so for me, growing up in Brooklyn was terrific because it was this incredible, not necessarily a melting pot, right? Because the neighborhoods when I was growing up were still very much segregated. Okay. However, there were so many different cultures and diversities. And I remember driving a couple of blocks and you would go from an all black neighborhood to an all Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. And the junior high school where I went was in Bensonhurst. And at that time it was an all Italian neighborhood. And so you know, you, you had these different, I'd call it communities of people, but when you grew up in Brooklyn and you went to the schools that I did, you ended up going through these neighborhoods and seeing all these different cultures existing. And I just thought that was fascinating. And so, you know, the other thing I, I would say that really influenced me growing up in Brooklyn, well, one is just a recognition that my parents at 23 and 20 years old, back in 1969, made this decision, my mother particularly at 20 years old, to leave her family in Vietnam and bring herself and me here to settle into this country. Like, you know, unfortunately there were lots of kids that were born to US servicemen um, back then who, whose who's, you know, fathers decided not to bring them back. And so, I always think about that decision that my parents made at such an early age and how different a, my life would be if they didn't make those decisions at that young age. Quite frankly, the age that my oldest son is now, 20 right. years old, they were making those kind of life decisions. And, um, and so that's always, you know, I, I've always thought in the back of my mind how different my life could be. And that gives me an appreciation for, for life. Now, did she work? She did. Oh, one of the things that both my parents taught me growing up is the value of hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom actually worked two jobs. She was a cashier at a hardware store in Brooklyn, Sid's Hardware. Um, and she was also a, a custodian, a janitor at yes. Automotive High School. And that's how I spent my summers um, in high school, mopping floors, scrubbing chairs, gum off of floors, 
Um, and, and that's how I spent my, you know, my summers growing up. My dad was an engineer at the Brooklyn Hospital and ended up, uh, you know, he started off in the boiler room there and then progressed his way to be the director of engineering at Brooklyn Hospital. So, you know, my parents taught me the value of hard work and respect. And, and I think those are lessons that I had to, you know, take with me growing up. Well, obviously, I, I love that story. So work ethic was definitely taught to you, but also there must have been a great stress on academics. And I know you love athletics. You said you played baseball, you went to Cornell, so you must have been a good student. Obviously, they really wanted you to do well in academics. When you're the oldest son of immigrant parents, yeah. there's one thing they want you to be, well, maybe two things, a doctor or a lawyer. And so the oldest, which was me, was going to be a doctor. And from the time I could remember, my parents would tell all of their friends, they'd tell me, they'd tell anyone that would listen, oh, this is our son, Mark, he's gonna be a doctor. And so I went to high school, Brooklyn Tech as a pre-med major, dissecting cats and the whole thing. Then I went to Cornell as a pre-med major. And then I took organic chemistry, Abe, and, and that's when I decided that I wasn't gonna be a doctor. Love and that was one of the hardest decisions I had to make um, and, and really one of the, the, well, two of the people that actually helped me make that decision were my brothers who said, this is your life. This isn't mom and dad's life. This is your life. And if you don't want to be a doctor, then you shouldn't be a doctor. And I had a hard time. Uh, I remember the conversation had with my, mostly my dad, my mom was more understanding, but my dad, and that was a, one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had to have. But so, so that was my path. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I got some great advice from the people at the career center office there. And they suggested me going into a path of business. And I ended up doing that. Um, and the rest is history, as they say. So, but you played baseball uh, at Cornell. I think you were an infielder, correct? That's right. Second base. Yep. Second base. And, um, you know, obviously I know in your 40 under 40 write-ups, your greatest disappointment is that you couldn't become a professional athlete, but you went into sales. If I recall, I think you did some Clorox work and some, was it PNG, but you were focused on sales after college. That's right. That's right. So my first job after college was Procter and Gamble in their okay. sales group and they recruited on campus. And, and again, I had, I had gotten this late start right in the business management world because I did my first two years as a pre-med student and so I then transferred into the undergraduate business management program at Cornell um, and I needed some experience some real experience from a company that was going to provide great training and that's where I was so fortunate to land a job at Procter & Gamble because they taught you the fundamentals of marketing, the fundamentals of selling, quite frankly, frameworks that I still use to this day, mm -hmm. I learned at Procter & Gamble and how to handle objections and how to deal with partners and customers. And so um, I learned all of those things at Procter & Gamble. And then um, the Clorox company recruited me to be a region sales manager when I was 25 years old. And I then ended up having responsibility for all of Clorox's Kingsford division business in the Northeast. It was about a hundred million dollar territory wow. that I was managing at 25 years old. But, but there was something there that was missing. And that was that, as I, as you mentioned, I actually played sports growing up. I played baseball all my life and, and uh, played at Cornell and, 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 and I, I, you know, sports was in my uh, blood. It was my passion. 
Um, and I, I felt like, is there something I could be doing uh, that was more along the lines of sports and um, decided that's why I decided to go back to business school and get my MBA and pursue a career in sports marketing. Um, but yes, they, but my experience and my foundation was in the consumer packaged goods world with Procter and Clorox. And so were you in New York at that time with P&G and Clorox? I was. I, yeah. I, my first territory with in Procter & Gamble was actually called the Inner City Grocery Retail Organization. Um, so I actually used to go into bodegas and key foods and sea towns in yep. New York City, yep. actual supermarkets, and line up the tied bullseye on the shelf and deal with store managers and getting the product on the shelf. Um, so those are my first jobs. And then my region sales manager job, I was based in New Jersey, but had responsibility for all the way up into the Northeast um, in Pennsylvania. You said you go back to business school, but you go to Harvard Business School. And I think you actually went to school with a number of people who are still your colleagues in the sports industry. I remember kind of a reunion of sorts at 40 under 40s with Harvard Business School graduates. But you also took a marketing internship at Pepsi, I think, during this time in sports marketing. That's right, that's right. So when I went back to HBS, and by the way, my classmates were Scott O'Neill, Malcolm Turner, um, Victor Williams, who's now the wow. NBA, yeah. <laughs> NBA yeah. Africa CEO. So those were all my that's... classmates. Um, there, you know, we, there, there wasn't enough room for all of us with Scott there, right? Like he, he took up a lot of space, <laughs> yeah, particularly on the basketball court. But, uh -huh. uh, but yeah, we were all classmates there. Um, and so I went back to business school because I wanted to, pursue this career in sports. And um, I remember when I first got to campus, there were two places that I went to when I hit the campus. On the first day, Abe, I went to the financial aid office to figure out how I was gonna pay for it. Uh, but then I also stopped by the career center office and I told them, I want a job in sports. How do I get a job in sports? And they actually printed out for me a list of all the Harvard Business School alums that were in the business of sports. Mm -hmm. And it was people like uh, John Rice, um, who was at, at the NBA at the time, people like Bill Doherty, again, at the NBA, people like um, Neil Austrian, who was a president of the NFL, and Sarah Levinson was president of NFL Properties, and Hughes Norton, who was an ING and Tiger Woods agent. And I actually called these folks out of the blue. I just cold called them and said, I'm a student at HBS and um, I'm interested in sports and will you give me some advice? And it was incredible how many people took my phone call, arranged meetings for me when I came back to New York, put me in touch with other people. And that's how I started building my network in sports. And, um, and, and the way the Pepsi opportunity came about is they were actually interviewing on campus for internships and they liked my consumer packaged goods experience right. with Procter and Gamble and Clorox. And so um, when I got the offer, it was with the Mountain Dew brand. And I, um, the, the, the guy who was the head of Mountain Dew is a guy named Dave Berwick. And wow, he, yeah. was, he was a Harvard Business School alum. And I actually found out I was the only HBS uh, uh, person that year that they made an offer to for an internship. So I had a little bit of leverage. And I knew they had a sports marketing group. So I went to Dave and I said, I, I can't wait to work for Pepsi. Is it possible I could go do this internship in your sports marketing group? And he said, let me check. He checked with the head of sports marketing, a guy, Mike McCann at the time. And Mike said, absolutely. I'd love a intern, MBA intern from Harvard Business School. 
And I ended up going there and ended up, you know, Pepsi at the time was a sponsor of Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NASCAR, Jeff Gordon. Um, and I had the opportunity to work on those sponsorships. And my summer project was to, you know, as, as you know, uh, Major League Baseball and Little League Baseball um, were not connected back then in any real way. And so, but Pepsi had a sponsor of both Major League Baseball and Little League Baseball. And so my project was to create a marketing program that would connect the two. And I remember presenting to the president of Major League Baseball Properties that summer, a guy named Bob Gamgort. And, um, and Bob, uh, after the meeting, I guess whatever I said impressed him. And he said, here's my business card. Stay in touch with me when you go back to school. And I stayed in touch with him. I ended up doing a field study project with him for academic credit in my second year with Malcolm Turner, who ended right. up being president of the G League um, and the athletic director of Vanderbilt. And then... Um, uh, and then Bob made me an offer to come work for him after I graduated. So that series of events led to my first job at Major League Baseball, uh, working in the corporate sponsorship group. Right. So that was 98, I believe. And then you joined the NBA maybe a year or two later. Your great run at the NBA had you then become deputy commissioner in 2014, roughly, I believe. So great story to get to your path. And we'll talk about career advice and advice to young people to get involved in the business of sports. Because one of them to me is always to use your college alumni. And it looked like you did that very well. So you're in sports. You've been in sports for a number of years. Let's talk about leadership lessons and management lessons. You've been lucky to work for unbelievable leadership. Leaders, David Stern, Adam Silver. What are the attributes of great leadership that you've seen in your career? I've been so lucky, as you said, Abe, to work for true visionaries and uh, I think the greatest of all time in the sports industry and, and in any business, quite frankly. And so to me, those characteristics that they all exhibit are to have this vision, to be very inspirational, to see things that people don't see, to be able to see around the corner, um, and then to really you know, have compassion. Um, I think that's one of the, the, the most underestimated things about leaders is the leaders that I've been most inspired by are those that have compassion. Um, and that it's not necessarily the things that you see, but it's the things that you don't see that they do behind the scenes that they never are looking for credit or get credit for. Um, but, but great leaders do that. Um, they have this incredible ability to bring people together, to communicate, um, and to get people rowing in the same direction. And so uh, I've had the benefit, like you said, with the late David Stern, with Adam Silver, um, and, and even my bosses prior to that. You know, I've had several mentors along the way, everywhere I've been, people like Bob Gamgord at Major yeah. League Baseball, um, and, and even at Procter and Gamble and Clorox, I had a guy named Russ Dunham and Grant Lamontagne, who were my, uh, you know, heads of the the, the, the actual uh, groups there, um, who were great inspirational leaders. So I had the chance to learn from a lot of them, and incorporate a lot of the things that I learned into my style. So before we get to your style, I do want you to differentiate between compassion of the leaders that you've mentioned, but also being tough. 
because uh, you know we all know legendary stories of uh, the late David Stern. He could he could he could cut to the chase, and he could be very very at times gruff and very tough. I'm sure Adam can be too, but there is a difference between being compassionate leader and also being a direct and tough leader. Yeah, and I actually think that's one of the things that has changed about my style, quite frankly, over the years, is I used to be very um, non-confrontational, if you will, and, um, and, and sometimes a little bit passive. And I think over time, I've had to learn how to be more direct with people. And I've realized that by being direct, you're actually being helpful. It's not being mean, but it's being direct. It's being clear. Um, and I think that you know, people like Adam and David have a way of being clear. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's just, it, it, it saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of confusion. Um, but, but the compassion that I'm talking about is I think a compassion for people in an yes. understanding yes. for people. So yes, you know, um, uh, the leaders I've seen can be difficult on people, but then, you know, one of the things that people didn't see about David is after he would chew you out, you know, he'd kind of come over and say, how you doing, big guy? You know, how are you doing? And, um, and he would check in on you. And so you knew that he was doing it in a way um, out of his passion for the business, for the issue, um, but that he still cared about you. And I think that, that is, that's a, there's a difference there in, you know, leaders such as that. I do like that differentiate. And the people I've talked to about you, who you've managed and who you've led, you know, they all cited your style, very uh, approachable. Uh, I won't call it easy going, but easy in terms of getting to know you and getting uh, to, to get, have a conversation with you. Uh, also, they say you, you're much of a consensus builder. Has that style, would you agree with that? And how has that changed over the years? I do, I do. I think, again, the way that I was raised is to respect everybody. and. Um, I have a true interest in getting to know people and listening mm -hmm. to them and understanding. And so I, and again, we talked a little bit about how I grew up with different cultures in my household and different perspectives. And I think I really do believe that getting those different perspectives from people makes you better, makes organizations better. And so my style is very much a, um, I want to hear from people. I want to listen from people. I want to learn from people um, and then ultimately come to the right decision. And, you know, as I've, as I've said, I, I am much more of a consensus builder and I, I like that. I've had to learn how to be, I think, a little bit more direct over time um, to get to where we need to get to sometimes a little bit quicker. Um, uh, but that's something that I've, 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 I think, learned how to do over time as a leader, because sometimes the consensus building, it takes time, yeah. right? It takes time. And, um, and, and sometimes when you have a lot on your plate, sometimes you have to cut to the chase and say, hey, I know where we're gonna end up here. So let me help you get there. Right. Um, but I always, always um, appreciate and value getting people's points of views there because I think part of, part of great leadership is having hum humility and recognizing that you don't, you can't possibly know everything. And so I think, um, and, and I learn from people every single day, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's what the ability to learn, the ability to really take things in and ingrain them and um, it, it is how you learn, quite frankly. So to me, those are all important things that I try to emulate in my style.
You know, the, the ethos of humility definitely runs in effective and successful leaders. I want to talk about really what you look for in people you're hiring. What are important attributes of people you want to bring on to your team? I look for people that have overcome adversity, Abe. I look for okay. people that, that um, have demonstrated that can, they can get things done. And I also uh, like people that have done things that have never been done before. Um, people that have done things that have never been done before say a lot about a person because those, those, those people um, have demonstrated that they have courage, uh, that, they, um, you know, that, that they have the ability to uh, rally a group of people together to get something done, to have start with an idea and then to get it done. And so, you know, I've always thought about that too. Yeah, I've always thought about that too, in terms of, as I look along my career, you know, I, I, I like, and I've always had this mindset of, okay, what hasn't been done before? And how do I create those kinds of things? And it could be small things, right? And, and, and by the way, it doesn't need to be things that you completely invent, because I'm not necessarily a creative person. Um, but I'll, I'll give you one example early on in my career, where um, when I first started at the NBA back in 1999, uh, Major League Baseball um, had done something where they would allow their corporate sponsors to do take batting practice on the field. And I'll never forget um, at the uh, all-star game at Fenway Park, the baseball all-star game at Fenway Park. And I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world, right? right. <laughs> right? To have your sponsors be out on the, the actual field taking batting practice. And so um, I, I remember getting to the NBA leading up to the all-star game. And I said, hey, have we ever, do we let sponsors like play pickup basketball on the all-star court? And no one had ever thought about it. And so I said, well, let's start doing that. And 20 years later, we're still doing it. And it's, and it's a great thing. But I, you know, I think people who apply certain programs or things or, or, or who are creative and are solutions oriented, those are the kinds of people that I, I try to hire. And again, people who have overcome adversity to get things done, because I know that no matter what's thrown at them, I mean, I mean one of the things that is um, that you can almost guarantee in our business is that there are going to be things that you cannot predict and things that you cannot expect and how you deal with those things, I think, is critical and important. Like a global pandemic, right? So, I mean, <laughs> like right. a global pandemic. And, and so, yeah. some of those things, uh, Mark, though, that takes you some time to get to know the candidate. If you're really trying to dig into their story about where they've overcome adversity and, and trying to spot creativity and being a solutions provider. So, you have to have a, a pretty good eye for that. What is a quality you don't tolerate? What's a total turnoff for you when someone's coming to you to talk about a job? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think people who are a little bit too cocky, a little, you know, um, to me, I like modesty. And, um, and, and that's a turnoff to me when, uh, and, and it's a balance, right? Because I think in interviews too, you're, you want to talk about yourself, but I think it's how you talk about yourself. Um, and, and so to me, that's one of the big turnoffs for me is, is um, you know, and, and, I, and I think when I'm interviewing people, there has to be that, that connection um, but not in a not in a comfortable way per se, but just uh, you know, does that person have values? Does that person respect people? You know, um, I oftentimes, whenever I'm interviewing somebody, I'll ask my assistant, how did the person right. um, 
you know, tell me about how the person treated you. Did they address you by name? Were they nice? Um, I, I'll get little tips like that yeah. because I think that says a lot about a person if they, and, and, and I've, I've had that. I've had that situation where my assistant said, yeah, the, you know, the, the guy was a jerk. Right. The guy didn't say hello to me. The guy didn't say anything to me. And, um, and, and that tells me a lot about a person. Right. They might have been great and polite to you, but they didn't treat others well. And that, that, that's definitely a sign. As we wrap up here, Mark, a couple of other ones here. We talked about advice. And I know that between young people at Cornell, young people in your networks, friends of uh, children of friends are probably all coming to you wanting to be the next Mark Tatum, wanting to be a deputy commissioner of a sports league. What advice do you have to young people to get into the business of sports? Yeah, one, one of the pieces of advice I give, particularly young people, um, uh, and this is sometimes people don't know what they want to do. I always tell people, pursue your passion. I always tell people to pursue your passion because, you know, one of the, the, the most um, important decisions I made in my career is I was at this pivotal moment at the Clorox company where I was doing really well, right? I was a 25 year old region sales manager. My next job was to go into headquarters. I mean, I was being told I was on this fast track at, at the Clorox company. Um, and, and that was very attractive. I decided to give all that up mm -hmm. to go back to business school. Didn't know how I was going to pay for it. Like I mentioned earlier, um, to pursue this dream of sports. And I didn't know anybody in the sports business. And I didn't know if I could, if I would ever get a job in sports. Um, and so at the time I was scared, yeah. um, but it, it ended up working out. And, and to me, I think for young people in particular, I, I tell them life is too short, pursue your passion, go for it, go for it. And then, you know, take, take advantage, as you mentioned earlier, of the networks that you have. I think uh, people don't realize, quite frankly, uh, how, you know, just how connected they are, how small the world is, that they are probably only one or two degrees away from somebody who can actually help them. Um, in the business of sports. And I think building those relationships is important, no matter what industry you're in, but particularly the sports industry. I love that story because you did, you, you, you basically took a big risk on, and a big bet on yourself to, to give that position up because I'm sure it was a nice career path to go to Harvard Business School, but also a really jump into the unknown. Uh, so that's anything you wish you did differently or anything you look back on and say, if I know, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done this. You know, I, I believe that things happen for a reason, Abe. I, I really do. And, um, you know, in, in everything that has ever seemed at the time, uh, like a big uh, setback or disappointment has always ended up being okay. And so I think it's because of that, that I feel like things happen for a reason. And so, you know, do I go back and think about, okay, could, I wish I could have gotten into the sports industry sooner. Sure. Right. Um, um, I would, I didn't, but it, 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 but I actually think that having, that experience at Procter & Gamble at Clorox helped prepare me, quite frankly, for getting that opportunity at Pepsi, which helped prepare me for baseball, which helped prepare me for the NBA. So in a way, I look back at that and I don't have many regrets because I feel like, you know, I make the best decisions that I can at the time. 
and I think that those always end up being where you're exactly what you're su exactly supposed to do, and it ends up putting you exactly where you're supposed to be. And so I I, I spend a lot of time trying to learn from those things, um, but I don't spend a lot of time regretting the things that happened or the things that I did or didn't do, because um, I think they all end up working out in the long term. Last two questions. You and I have spent a lot of time on this topic, and that is the diversifying the the ranks of sports business, uh, particularly at the at the at the executive level, but also throughout the sports business. Here we sit in June of 2021. Mark, what uh, signs of uh, optimism and hope that you see that the sports industry, the business side of sports, is becoming more diversified? Yeah, I, I am optimistic, Abe, because people are talking about it, right? And not only within the sports industry, but people are talking about it across corporate, the corporate world. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by those conversations, the need for there to be a opportun opportunities for everyone, for, for women, for people of color, um, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their, their gender, um, their sexual orientation. So I think there's this, there's this understanding and recognition that, that needs to change. Um, I think there's still an opportunity in the sports business. And for me, the sports business should be the leader in this space. We should be leading the way. We should be best in class when it comes to hiring diverse talent at all levels of organizations on the competition side and on the business side. And we still have a little ways to go, but I am encouraged that people are focused on it. Um, I'm having more and more conversations with my colleagues um, in other leagues, other sports properties about it. Um, and I think we're seeing some rising emerging talent uh, of, of, of diverse talent throughout the industry. I would agree there, specifically in our, in our new program, New Voices Under 30, Mark, the the diverse talent of, of, of young people who are getting involved in the business of sports is very, very encouraging. I would say that a lot of people would look at you as deputy commissioner of the NBA, like you are in the perfect job. It's a great job. What a life. But let's talk really quickly and end with this. What's next for Mark Tatum? <laughs> it is a great job, Abe. And I, I, what's next is whatever the commissioner says is I, next. I, I bet that's so, true. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I love what I do. I think there's so much uh, international expansion, as you know, we just uh, I just yes. came back from Rwanda yep. and the successful completion of the first Basketball Africa League season, um, the raising of capital of NBA Africa to create a new NBA Africa entity there. Um, and I think there's so much opportunity for us uh, on the continent of Africa, but around the world internationally. Um, and there's still plenty of runway for us here in the U.S. How we continue to engage with fans and consumers um, is just been fantastic. And so um, for me, I love what I do. I think there's so much more that we're going to continue to do here at the NBA. And I'm, and I'm thrilled and looking forward to that. We've always had such an affable, fun, uh, like I said, uh, likable manner. So it looks like you love your job every time I see you. And and I will say, like, we spent 30 minutes and I didn't even get to ask you a question about basketball. It's crazy. But it's great to hear your life story, your professional and personal journey. An SBJ, 40 under 40, Hall of Famer, uh, Mark Tatum, thank you for joining us today on the SBJ I-Factor. It's great to see you. Thanks, Abe. Great to see you, too. All right. Talk to you soon, my friend. See you, buddy. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for joining SBJI Factor today. Remember to subscribe to SBJI Factor wherever you listen to your podcasts 
and listen to our future episodes that will hit every two weeks.